HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food and beverage radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. My name is Greg Benson coming at you solo this week. Uh, Damon and Souther are traveling on the West Coast where it is oddly less smoky and hazy than it is here on the East Coast. Uh, We have a nice little bank of some smoke rolling in. Uh, Once again, the air quality in New York is in the 150s and 160s. Um, I somewhat unwisely decided to go for a run yesterday when the air quality was around eh, 50 and came back and it was around eh, 150. So I'm paying for that now. It kind of feels like back when I was 20 and I decided that I really, really was going to be into hookah bars. Anyway, I have my theories that this is revenge from some sort of divine force for a decade of hazy IPAs and we're now paying for our sins in a very ironic way. But we can get into that later because we have a very exciting guest in the studio with us today. Joining us from the other end of Brooklyn, New York, we have Erica Rose, the co-creator and the co-director of the Lesbian Bar Project docuseries. Erica, how are you? Uh, you know, trying not to inhale too much um, of this <laughs> smoke. I will say earlier this month when we had this I think smoke, that, I think that was what Eric Adams said. I think that was the official statement from the mayor is just try to breathe less. <laughs> if you could just do that maybe once or twice an hour, you'll be fine. Yeah. So I, um, you know, took his advice to heart and I ended up, uh, getting a horrible cough and had to go to antibiotics. I had to get an inhaler, albuterol and just like, you know, do that whole shebang. And I'm now in recovery, but I decided to walk for 30 minutes. Like, you know, I didn't do a run like you, but I did a walk and have now been hacking a bit. So, um, it's back. And, um, I'm trying to stay indoors. So that's, that's how I'm doing. It's weird. It's weird. Like rooting through the closet being like, do I still have an N95 in here? Like I thought I, I thought I threw all these away, not in the trash can, just out the window of my apartment, like see you in hell sometime in 2022. And now I'm having to come <laughs> crawling back to them. Yeah. Um, I think the only thing I have left in my apartment are those like, like 
my roommate three years ago, like knitted together a mask back when we thought it was all cute and cozy. Like, Oh, we're going to have 15 days off in March of 2020. (laughs) So that's the only thing I have left, which isn't helpful to combat COVID or the smoke or anything except being adorable. So, um, I'm with you there. I was going to say, I'm sure it looks, I'm sure it looks very cute. It sounds very cute. Yeah. Yeah. If I was going to like some, you know, anime convention, um, you know, I think I would, uh, be a, you know, not a standout, but I think I would blend right in. Let's just say that. Exactly. Yeah. We all, we all, well, we all like spaces where we belong. And speaking of which, this sounds like a great way to get into, um, the project that you're working on. So tell our listeners a little bit about, um, what the lesbian bar project is and how you got involved with it. Sure. So in speaking of COVID in March of 2020, uh, as we all remember, COVID hit New York city and the industries that shut down pretty immediately were film and TV and entertainment and restaurants and hospitality. So as a filmmaker, I had nothing but time on my my hands, uh, and I was reflecting on the importance of gathering and safe spaces. And this coincided with a NBC Out article that came out that was reporting that there were only 16 lesbian bars left in the country at the time, and that the pandemic could bring that number down to zero. So I had been spending a lot of time on the phone with my dear friend, who's a brilliant another brilliant queer filmmaker named Alina Streep. And we were chatting about, um, you know, just kind of this unprecedented time in history. And we realized that we hadn't seen each other in weeks. And the last time we were able to gather together was at Ginger's, uh, the lesbian bar in Brooklyn. So we started talking about this article and we started game planning what we could do to really spread the word. I mean, we consider ourselves very ingrained in the community and we didn't even know the numbers were so bad. So we decided to do the only thing we know how to do well, which is tell stories and make movies and launch uh, the Lesbian Bar Project. So we conceptualized it in a couple of phases. Uh, We started in 2020 with a 90 second PSA. And our goal was to really get that really staggering statistic out there and to also raise money for the bars. Because at the end of the day, yes, the bars needed visibility and we needed to tell the stories of the bars. But they were in financial crisis and we wanted to do an impact campaign to give back to these spaces that gave us so much. So we also partnered with Leah Delaria, who uh, is from Orange is the New Black. She was our executive producer and did voiceover. And uh, we also knew that we wanted it to be a branded project because at the end of the day, um, brands were able to, you know, help us get the message out there faster and to give us the financial support we needed. So we partnered with Jägermeister, which has been our partner uh, since. And they had an initiative already called Hashtag Save the Night, which was giving back to uh, nightlife spaces that were dis- disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So in 2020, we launched and we raised initially over $117,000 for the bars which was totally unexpected and something that really uh, we were so thrilled about. And 100% of that money went back to the bars. And then in 2021, we did a short film. And that short film was really to humanize this statistic. And we traveled to, we were in New York and in DC and Mobile, Alabama. And that short film uh, was released June of 2021. And we did another crowdfunding campaign raised over $150,000 for the bars. So collectively, we raised nearly $300,000 for the bars. Our list kept growing. Uh, 
when we started the project, there were 16. Uh, we discovered a few more along the way and more have opened. Now we can probably say there are 28 on our list and those are accessible on our website, lesbianbarproject.com. And our goal was to really always do a documentary series. Uh, of course, also help the bars. But the documentary series gave us the ability to really go much deeper into the lives of the bar owners. And to, you know, we see the bars as a reflection of these people's vision. And I, I always refer to them as cultural architects. They're far more than just simply bar owners. Um, you know, these bars are fundamental safe spaces. And they're also places for community and places where you can really find your authentic voice and self. So the bar owner's vision is really reflected in our episodes. So we did three episodes that was on the, that's streaming for free on the Roku channel. And, um, we did an episode on Julie Mabry, who's the owner of Pearl Bar in Houston, Texas, Audrey Corley, who's the owner of Boycott Bar in Phoenix, Arizona. And Lisa Canastrofsi, the owner of Henrietta Hudson in New York. And we are so excited that we are finally gearing up to this year to do our first international episode in Germany. It, it, like we've been so blessed and thrilled. I mean, this project, like, you know, our short film, um, what won a Tribeca X award are, and was acquired by AMC plus we did the doc series on Roku. Um, and the doc series, we won a glad media award for it. And, um, we were also at Sundance for the brand storytelling. So it's just been really incredible to see the love and support we've received from this. And I think people can tell because Alina and I literally put our hearts and souls on the line for this. And I think that's really reflected in the filmmaking. You can tell that we really, really care. I mean, this project is a labor of love. There's not that much financial gain for us. We really are doing this for our community. And that's something that I can stand by and say I'm really proud of. And I'm so, so happy to just talk about this project. I can talk about it all day, every day. <laughs> I, I love that. And I, I, I that might honestly be an answer to the, the question that I wanted to ask next, which is that at the risk of bumming out everyone uh, who's listening and having them turn to a happier podcast at this moment, um, it kind of feels like the theme of the last few years has been like, oh, we'll tolerate awful stuff happening until all of a sudden we wake up and we're like, oh, oh, too late to fix it now. It's like, oh, sure, like the president's bad, but like we can put up with it. Oh, crap. People are smearing poop in the walls of the Capitol. Well, no, nothing we can do about that now. Like, oh, yeah, sure, like, we know climate change is a problem, but oh, crap, all of Canada's on fire. Well, nothing to be done. And it seems like that was kind of the origin story for for this project, is you saw in the numbers of this article that you read the erosion of these, what I can only imagine, are incredibly important uh, spaces to this uh, sector of the queer community. And you decided that you weren't going to wait for it to get too bad to do something about it. You decided you were going to act. So what was, was that something you were conscious of and, and how did, how did that play out for you and your team? I, I think my entire life have refused to be complacent. And I think that something that I think you're right, that there's this kind of, and I'm not, I mean, there's so many amazing activists and leaders and uh, politicians and community organizers who are doing far more impactful work than I can ever do. But I think the reason I got into film was because I do think it's the most powerful tool in the world to understand other people, where other people are coming from. And I think that often we are in very monolithic 
social groups. And I think it's rare to actually be in groups that are truly diverse, both racially, sexual orientation, gender identity, socioeconomically. I think it's, you know, especially in the United States, we're very segregated. I think that film is able to transport you to places and experiences that you might not ever have had. And I think the only way to combat fear and hate is through exposure and education. And I think that we, education is completely under attack in this country. I think the evil forces around us, they want us to stay ignorant and uninformed. That's their goal because they know that education is power. And I think for me, film has always been a tool in that. So I personally don't ever want to stay silent or complacent. Um, I was, I came out when I was 19 years old. Um, so that's, I don't know how old am I? I'm 31 now. So you do the math <laughs> and no, I, 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 I won't, I won't. Yeah. Um, and I remember I came out and I came out to my community, my friends, um, my parents, and I didn't really see that many people around me who were like me. And I came out and, you know, it wasn't until, and, and I professionally, um, was out and I started working on film sets and I was a director's assistant, producer's assistant. I really kind of dove right in and I was like really badly sexually harassed primarily because of my sexual orientation. And gross. yeah, it was disgusting. It was gross. Um, I have a whole story like, you know, and, and I'm not the only one, obviously there's so many, like we've, you know, me too was essentially an indictment on the practices of the film industry. Um, so I was really badly sexually harassed and that forced me back into the closet professionally. And I remember I was working for a producer for like two years and I never talked about being gay. And there was a part of me that was dying because at work I wasn't out. And then there was this really pivotal moment for me during the pulse shooting. Um, and I remember exactly where I was when I found out I was in LA during LA pride and I found the pulse shooting happened. Then I flew back to New York and I looked at the vigil outside of Stonewall and I made a promise to myself in that moment to never ever be closeted in any place where I am because time is precious. We never know what's going to happen, especially with the evil forces I laid out earlier in this rant. And I made this conscious decision. I am going to live outwardly. And that means my work is going to be out. And I started coming out professionally and then I had, you know, and anyone who tells who's queer, regardless of how you identify, tells you it's a complete uh, myth that you only come out once. So you're constantly coming out and it means many different things. So I started to come out publicly as this queer filmmaker and unapologetically. And I started making specifically queer films and uh, talked about my experience and the experience of my friends and community members. And then when I you know, saw this article, it really tied into this mission I set out for myself and this mission I know Alina shares as well. And she has a really interesting story, which I won't say for her, but 
she's French and she has a whole different, you know, kind of lens to her own coming out. But I will say that it was this really conscious effort that I am not going to be complacent. I'm not going to be feed into their hate by being in the closet. And that is reflected in my work as well. Well, first of all, good for fucking you. That's incredible. <laughs> and, and I imagine, you know, it's a lot easier to say that in a, in a podcast than to actually do that and live that day to day. So thank you for sharing that and, 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 and rock on. Um, but I think that also really highlights the need for these spaces that you're talking about in, in this, um, in this series that you're producing, because, you know, in the, I, I don't know how to say it lightly came out a little bit at the beginning of, of pride month here on this podcast. And I know from, from my experience in the spaces where I really feel like I fit in, like you can almost, there's a, there's a putting down of a part of your, like a sort of a, a little bit of a veneer that you have to carry in your day-to-day life when you're in spaces that you can really be completely and totally yourself. And you know, I imagine that that that's kind of your experience with these bars. I also was really interested in having you on the show because, you know, this is a drinks and drinking and bars podcast. So we get a lot of bartenders, distillers, et cetera. But we don't get to hear a lot from the people who are on the other side and about what these spaces mean to them. Could you sort of go into that a little bit? Well, first, congratulations for coming out or lightly coming out, whatever Thank that you. means to you. That's really exciting. <laughs> and um, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, these spaces are more than just bars. Um, I, you know, I always like to say like, you know, Cubby Hole knew I was gay before I even did. I was really drawn to this space. Um, and I remember thinking that when I finally had the confidence to fully, you know, go for it, I would have a community waiting with open arms. And for me, it's totally like people like, especially people outside the community, they're always like, well, there's online dating. Like, why do you need a bar? And I'm like, I've maybe hooked up with like three people I've ever met at a lesbian bar. Um, and they were great people, let me tell you. But um, it's, and it's not for a lack of effort or trying. It's just that, that that's not <laughs> the main goal. When we I didn't say it. it was, we didn't say it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, uh, and it's really because that's not my main goal when I go. The goal is to just be with my friends and to make new friends. And I think that it's a really, it's a space for queer friendship. And I think that often gets ignored when you talk about queer space. Um, you know, more of the focus is on maybe like sexual or dating dynamics or politics, which I'll get to in a second. But I really think that it's a space for me, especially to like, go and just be with my queer friends and be my queer self in a space where, uh, my identity and the identity of other marginalized genders within the queer community are prioritized, which is few and far between. Uh, it is also a space for political organizing. I, I think everything is, most things are political and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that it often gets a negative connotation, but for me, it's, political in the sense that us existing is often by some a minority but a loud vocal minority of people in this country is um seen as uh a threat it is seen as dangerous 
And I think us taking up space proudly without fear and without uh, curtailing to their kind of specific myopic view of gay people is powerful and political. And these bars are a reflection of that. And I think that what's really important to us in this project is to document their evolution. Because what a lesbian bar was 10, 20 years ago is far different than it is today. Many also, almost all of them on our list, essentially all of them, also use the label as queer. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I think that's part of evolution. It's part of language evolution. It's part of identity evolution. And I think that the most successful spaces are embracing that. And I think that we have come into this time where there can be a threat of violence at any moment. There can be violence at any moment. And I just applaud these bar owners who are mostly women and mostly queer who open their doors every day and provide safe spaces for a community that is often forgotten. Absolutely. And it, and it seems as if there's a, a special extra level of, um, Geez, I don't want to. I don't want to get you know. Well, I mean, hell, why not? I'll get dark on here because this is a dark subject. There's an extra level of danger running a lesbian bar that it doesn't seem like you would be running a you know a a bar that's frequented mostly by gay men. You know, it seems like there's a whole extra level of um, watching your back that one has to do, and it seems like it, by dint of that existing in those spaces and running one of those spaces and choosing to operate one of those spaces feels like almost to me as an outside observer, uh, an extra act of political resistance just by doing it and going to work every day. Yeah. I mean, I will say that people who run gay bars, it's also probably equally as much of a threat, um, if not sometimes more. Um, so it's like hard for me to quantify that. I do think that anyone who owns a queer space is especially in areas that are very lax with gun laws or are very, very evangelical Christian normative um, are under more threat. Yeah. And I, ugh, I could, I could uh, go a lot into, I, I have a friend actually who is a, um, a queer pastor here in New York city. Oh, who's cool. really actually turned me on to a number of like very queer uh, readings of the Bible. The, the Bible is actually, if you, if you really read into it, it's pretty gay. And, and I'm all for that. It's so homoerotic. It's so, it's all homoerotic. It's like, and also all these people were, you know, it's like really interesting. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to point out that like in, you know, more ancient civilizations, like the Roman empire, it was very normalized to be queer and to have same sex relations. And it's really these like Christianity really like fucked it all up for all of us. But, um, yeah, I think that, I mean, I only like going to, I'm, I'm Jewish and I only like going to my girlfriend. Um, we went to, uh, the Javits center for Rosh Hashanah services, um, a couple years ago and, um, we get there and, uh, the rabbi was this like power dyke. And I was like, so thrilled. And I was like, 
then I made the, I was like, I only want to go to services if a lesbian rabbi is leading them. Like, <laughs> like that's it. And, and it's like, <laughs> I'm not a religious person, but I actually think that there's no need for religion to exclude queer people. It's actually, it's so like silly that that happens because I'm like, you can get more fucking money for your church or whatever the fuck if you like openly accept queer people. Um, and it's also just like completely, you know, hypocritical bullshit. I have a book that would, it's a 500 page book that my dad gave me, uh, that is all about how, uh, the Vatican is super, super gay, that it's openly known that the Cardinals have boyfriends and it's usually their secretaries or, you know, personal assistants. And then they go out at like, night in Rome to the gay bars. And it's like a very open secret, secret. So it's just like, it's all bullshit. And I think that it's important that we call out the bullshit and the fuckery because it's like the majority of the time, I mean, look at like Ted, Ted Haggard, you know, the evangelical leader in Colorado, like his escort had to come out and be like, this guy is full of shit. And I have been fucking him for the past three years or whatever the fuck. And then he was like, went on this whole crusade of being like, I'm, you know, need to be saved or whatever. And it's like, no, you like having a dick up your ass. There's nothing wrong with that. And just like, shut up and just like, stop ruining people's lives and stop torturing people with your bullshit and hatred. That's where I stand on that. No, I agree. And I think it's this weird, it's this weird perverse fear of like joy, you know? And I think that's why a lot of these, these bar spaces and, and, you know, again, to get dark about it, why you hear about these shootings at places like gay bars, gay nightclubs is because there's something infuriating to people who have these needs, but haven't fully reconciled them. And it gets filtered through this Reaganomics prison of self-loathing and shame, and it comes out the other side as as fear, and I think jealousy and envy and just hatred that other people can just enjoy something that they want so badly, right? You know, and that's why right. I think these spaces are so important, and why I think the work that you're doing is really, really interesting. Thank you, and yeah, I completely agree with you that. Uh, liberation and freedom is power. And I think that many of the hatred comes from jealousy, envy, and also fear of the unknown. But I also want to point out and highlight, yes, there's many layers of darkness and loss that are really intrinsic to this story. But I think that what we've really tried to do is also flip the script and transcend that narrative. And to look at how we are growing, how we are changing, how these bars are popping up and opening up in unexpected places. And I think that, yes, like, you know, 28 is still really fucking low. It's still bad. But <laughs> look where we were three years ago. And I'm, I'm not taking credit for that. Like, I, I think that, yes, we did a good job of like raising awareness, but a lot of these people, like, you know, it's like their blood, sweat and tears on the line. We just get to like, you know, make movies and talk about it. But I think that like, it's, it's going in a positive direction. Although I will say, as I was like, yes, positive positivity and whatever. 
I do want to <laughs> get real and point out many of the bars that are opening are in New York, LA, Chicago, in wealthy, liberal, progressive-ish, for the most part, cities. I think it's really important to highlight and point out that one of the bars that recently closed, they were featured in our short film, Hers in Mobile, Alabama. They had to shut their doors earlier this year, which is devastating. That was run by and owned by Rachel and Sheila Smallman. They are two um, lesbian Black women born and bred in the South. And um, frankly, the work that they are doing is just truly, truly phenomenal for so many people in that community. But I think hers closing is a microcosm of this trend that's happening in America, both economically and socially, that cities that are not as wealthy are really losing in terms of opportunities and in terms of economic growth and small businesses. And also many of the bars around the country that are thriving rely on allies to patronize those bars because Mobile, Alabama, although there are liberal sections of it, exists in a framework and a network that has a lot of LGBTQ hate, you're going to get fewer allies supporting that. And frankly, because women make less than men, queer women make less than straight women, we're already dealing with so many uh, wage gaps and economic disadvantages. A bar like Mobile, uh, hers in Mobile, had such an upward battle to fight. And Rachel and Sheila are going to continue the ethos and they're going to continue hers in party pop-up parties forms. But I just want to really like point that out that I think when we look at the landscape of uh, where these bars are opening, it's really important to contextualize uh, how that relates to their geography. Absolutely. And I, I definitely want to dig more into the specifics of, of what you found and, and where you found it in uh, the first iteration of this, this project, which is ongoing, which I'm excited to hear what you're working on right now. But before we do that, we should take a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors, but we will be right back talking with Erica Rose from the Lesbian Bar Project. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back. You're listening to The Speakeasy here on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're talking with the co-director and co-founder of the Lesbian Bar Project, Erica Rose. And we were talking a little bit about 
where some of these bars are located. And uh, early on in the show, when you were talking about some of the locations you shot at, you mentioned New York. And I was like, okay, makes sense. You mentioned DC. And I was like, all right, I'm from there. DuPont Circle makes sense. And then you mentioned Mobile, Alabama third. And I was like, whoa, did not did not see that coming to round out the trifecta. Um, was that a surprise to you too? Was there anything that you found working on this show from the beginning that really took you aback and and made you learn something that you didn't even that you didn't even know that perhaps you didn't know before? Well, actually, one really surprising thing is that there's three lesbian bars in Oklahoma, and when hmm. we first found that out, I was surprised because of course of the stereotypes. It's Oklahoma. It's Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, shout out to all my. Uh, uh, OKC friends. Um, I actually yes. Shout yeah. out to my badass lesbian friend who lives in Oklahoma. Yeah, shout out. I actually, if you're, if you're listening, keep fighting the good fight. Anyway. Yes, yes. I have a lot of friends from Oklahoma, um, actually. Um, but it actually, when we started doing more research, it totally made sense because there. One of the reasons a lot of the bars closed uh, was because of uh, around the country was because of gentrification, which really, really hit coastal cities hard. And then there's also this idea of assimilation, especially after Oberfell passed in 2015. I think the most privileged members of our community were able to say, oh, we don't need queer specific spaces. Assimilation was more so in the liberal kind of beacons of the country and not really present in a place like the Midwest or the South. And I think those kind of specifically lesbian queer spaces, not that they're just important there, they're important everywhere, but I think the stakes are higher there. So it's more important Mm. that there's this safe space for that community because they may not necessarily feel safe in the neighborhood local bar. Yeah. And that's, that's um, something I definitely wanted to, to touch on as well is this idea of, you mentioned earlier, the apps and how the apps have definitely, I think, kind of destroyed something that I, I I grew up seeing this in like Seinfeld and Friends. But by the time I was like, you know, of dating age in a major city, the singles bar was something that had just completely disappeared. And just the idea that you can strike up a conversation with someone at a bar and hit it off and get their number and vibe and maybe date for a little while is just so foreign. I did it for the first time in like six years back in like March, I think it was, I like wound up sitting next to someone. We were both there by ourselves. We swapped numbers. We went on a few dates and I had a moment where I was like, is this even legal now? <laughs> like, can people, are we still allowed to do this? And I, I'd like to to sort of get your take on what we sort of have gained by a lot of the assimilation and the fact that it's very easy to have a singles bar in your pocket all the time but also what what has been lost in terms of something we touched out about at the beginning of the episode and these physical, actual spaces where you can breathe the same air as another human being. It's interesting. I read this, I think it was an Atlantic article a couple of years ago where, um, or it might've been New York Mag, but one of those. And it was talking about how today, many people actually, because most of their dating happens online, they cannot understand or pick up or sense when someone's flirting with them in person spontaneously. And it's something Hmm. that they can't reciprocate either. And I think that online dating has its benefits. Um, I actually never really fared well with online dating. I wasn't really interested in it. I'm 
I think it's just because I'm naturally just a storyteller and dramatic and I need a good narrative. And what turns me on is like, will we, or won't we, you know, and I don't think that really exists in online dating. So, um, well, well, also I'm sure as a storyteller, like it's really nice to have a physical person there because you're like, Ooh, a captive audience. (laughs) Excellent. Exactly. And you know, I think anyone who was, is swiping on me might see like, okay, just like, you know, average, Jewish girl in New York, and then they don't get like the you know layers of my personality. So, and any any time you don't you don't get to bust out your favorite fifteen minute stories with the incredible punchline at the end. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's like the banter, and it's like most people are just horrible at texting. Anyway, it's just like not my thing. That being said, I think it did open many doors for people who um, it made it more accessible. It made it maybe people who have more specific interests or needs or. Um, you know, both sexually or romantically, it definitely brought communities together, which I think is a really beautiful thing. And I am not on this podcast to like shame anyone for online dating. I think most of my friends have met their like significant others or husbands, wives, whatever on like apps. So I think it's great. Um, I do think that back to what I was saying earlier with that article, that if you are solely relying on online dating and kind of have lost the ability to interact in real life, I think that personally is a problem. I think that what these spaces provide is that spontaneity. Um, I think that the pandemic really, especially the early days of the pandemic, shone a light on a reality where we don't have gathering spaces. And I didn't want to live in that reality. I think about the formative memories I've had in my 20s. And most of those memories took place out at the bars or on the streets of New York city on set with my friends in like living our lives and not knowing what's happening next. They don't really happen behind a computer screen. Um, so I think that that is a tremendous loss. I think also what's really interesting is that Gen Z, uh, especially the ones who turned 21 during the pandemic have really responded now that things have opened back up are going to these bars in massive numbers. Most of these bars, like when I go, they're packed and they're packed with a lot of younger people, which I think is great. It's, you know, there's still older generations there too, but they are packed and people want to dance and people want to breathe with other people. Um, hopefully not smoke infested air, but you know, they want to, <laughs> they want to just experience life and meet people. And I've met so many different walks of life at the bars. And I've, um, you know, and I, I'm just so grateful for that. And I think that I, like last week I gathered a bunch of people at this event I was having, like many of them for LA lesbians in town. And I was like, I'm going to give them a good time. And they came and then we just like went to another location, went to another party, gathered more people. And then we like a group of like 20 of us went to Dyke March together the next day. And then I saw more friends and I was like, if I just like didn't put myself out there and didn't like, you know, form this community, I wouldn't be like happy today. And I just like, my community is what gives, makes me whole. And I'm just so grateful for that. That's amazing. And yeah, there is, there is something that you can't replicate online. It was interesting. I was actually at a, a, a book launch last night for uh, our guest from the week before, Mindy Neglish. Her book, uh, How to Taste, is out now. Buy it. Um, and we were, as part of a tasting activity, to actually see if you were uh, a super taster, 
you were asked to do sort of a psychological exercise where you imagine a time when you were happy, like the time that you were like that, like your best memory. And I don't think anyone, when you ask them that, thinks of a time when they were by themselves. And I think that we often neglect these physical spaces because we, you know, because we we have such vibrant online lives and that comes with, you know, I also don't want to shit on online dating or social media. Like, you know, there's a lot of positives to go with the negatives. The internet is just as good as it is terrible a lot of the time. Um, but there is something that I think that we deprive ourselves of when we think of it as superfluous to have these spaces and these interactions. I completely agree. Yeah. And, and I, I want to ask now what you're, where this is taking you uh, at this point, because you're working on uh, a new phase of this project. So talk to us a little bit about that and talk to us about some of the spaces that you're covering right now. So Alina and I always knew that we wanted the Lesbian Bar Project to be a global initiative because these bars are both disappearing and changing internationally. And it's important that we bridge the gap between different nationalities, different ethnicities, different cultures and really have this mutual shared language and understanding of why these spaces are so important. We picked Germany as our first episode internationally for many reasons. Um, one, uh, there's this term there called flinta, and I don't know why it's not in the United States. It should be because it translates perfectly in English. It stands for female, lesbian, intersex, non-binary, trans, and agender. And we, Alina and I, when we found that out, we were like, oh my God, that's like, literally what we're talking about when we talk about who goes to the lesbian bars, because lesbian bars are not just for lesbian identified people. They're for all of those people in the Flinta umbrella. And we were so excited about that. And also Germany in many ways is like the leader and heartbeat of nightlife in the world. And they, they can provide a blueprint for where uh, our community and culture is headed potentially, but also they have a very profound relationship with shame. And that hmm. is something that is very present because of course of the Holocaust and German culture post-World War II has been very, very mindful of being, you know, of tempering pride. And usually that's national pride. Like you don't see German flags around, but that's, that's changing um, especially because of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war. I think that one thing we wanted to really capture, though, is this these specific communities that are really present in Germany. So our episode, we're filming in Cologne, and Cologne has this amazing bar called Boys Bar, which is the Flinta Bar. Uh, the owner, Payman, has really brought... Flinta onto the map in Cologne. Cologne is actually like often referred to as the gay capital of Europe. And it's mostly hmm. been this like haven for gay men, but Payman really wanted to bring this like sexiness and this cool factor to women because so often we don't have that. Uh, and she has really transformed Cologne into this like haven for queer women. And so we're centering on her in that, uh, part of the story and, uh, a group of, um, uh, prominent queer women who go to the bar. And then in Berlin, we're really focusing on the party culture there. So we're following this amazing party called Bebex and it's a collective and Bebex is a Swana queer party. And for 
those who don't know what SWANA is, it's a term that's being more widely used, but it's uh, the more accurate term for Middle Eastern. And uh, many of the members are Kurdish or Turkish or Iranian, and they are infusing their uh, culture of origin with their queerness, which is often not fused together for different reasons. And they're really, you know, making that prominent in Berlin, uh, which has many, many different Swana communities there. And then we're also following this uh, uh, party called Girlstown, which has been around for 15 years and have been like one of the leading Flinta parties in uh, Germany. And we're also interviewing other prominent queer voices. Uh, Tessa Gonzer is the first, uh, one of the first openly trans members of Bundestag, which is German parliament. And she uh, came from the Bavarian part of Germany and a more rural part and came out, uh, you know, 10 years ago and has really been a leader in the Green Party for LGBT rights. Uh, we're also interviewing Nike Slawik, who is another openly trans woman in the Bundestag. So we're really excited that we're interviewing both of them and uh, that we have access to them. And we also are talking to other activists and uh uh, we're talking to the Berlin Lesbian Archive, which is the second biggest lesbian archive in the world, second to Lesbian Her Story um, in New York. So we have a really, we're going to Dyke March, we're going to Cologne Pride, Berlin Pride. It's going to be amazing. So we're really, really stoked. And um, we can't wait to share this episode with our audience. I'm I'm excited to see it. And I'm especially excited to see it because it sounds like it's what you were talking about earlier in action. It's the fact that people are realizing that, you know, I, I would I would imagine that a lot of the folks that you encountered here are part of that, you know, that younger generation, the Zoomers. God bless them for actually being able to live a lot of the ideals that we got crapped on for for, you know, the first 12 years of our adult life. Um, but it's really I imagine that that's very heartening to see. And also, you know, you mentioned that when you started this project, there were 2016 uh, lesbian bars in the United States, I guess. And now I believe the number you dropped is 28, which check me if I'm wrong, but I think that is bigger than 16. So do you see, um, do you see progress? Do you see forward momentum? And what is that like to you as someone who has been, uh, you know, a, a part of that progress? What is that like to you to see it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not great at math either as seen by, I could not uh, tell you 31 minus 19 earlier, but I figured it out eventually. <laughs> um, I was an artistic math growing up. Um, anyone from Newton South high school that's listening to this knows that we were in this group called Sims and it was like, like group learning of math. So then I had to immediately, uh, when I was about to take the SATs had to, my sister essentially like my twin sister who was, uh, extremely good at math tutored me. Um, Anyway, that's a whole other thing, but, um, it is progress. I think that, uh, being part of just shining a light on these important safe spaces and helping raise awareness, helping lead the conversation in how our community can do better, where our community is headed has been such a beautiful, wonderful, and valuable experience and something that I will cherish and that will motivate me forever I was talking to Alina about this the other day and we were saying to each other, how blessed are we that we've been able to now travel the world and even people we don't speak the same language of, we have this mutual understanding, this unspoken understanding 
because we are part of this Flinta community. And I think I like to think about how, you know, when we started this project, we did a rough estimate of how many Flinta people are in the United States. And we came up with around, this is very rough estimate, like around 8.5 million. And even 28 bars is not, is completely disproportionate to the amount of people who would actually patronize them. And that's a reflection of society's value of us, which is frankly very low. But we are not going to curtail to society's overall view of us. We're not going to be complacent to that. We are loud. We're not going anywhere. And we're just getting stronger and more powerful every single day. And the bars growing and other safe spaces that are outside of bars that are growing and becoming more visible and outspoken is a product of the resilience and the power of our community. I think, I think that's amazing. First of all, I think it's amazing that you might've found the first time in history where Germans wanted a term and combined a bunch of things together to make it shorter <laughs> than the original terms. Yeah, usually it's- that's, that's really, so, so c- congratulations on that, on that first there. I'm sure that the Nobel committee will be in touch, <laughs> but also I just want to congratulate you on doing this work. I mean, it's gotta be, I imagine it, the emotional highs and lows are so dizzying, like to have to look at what you're fighting against, but then also what you achieve. It's, it doesn't sound like it's the faint of heart. So, so it's for the faint of heart. So congratulations and, uh, keep kicking ass. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, if people wanted to follow along and see exactly where you're kicking ass and whose asses you're kicking, uh, where where can they find you? Where are some good places to find the Lesbian Bar Project? Well, our 2022 docu-series, the one with Houston, Phoenix, and New York, is streaming for free on the Roku channel. Uh, you don't need Roku to access it. You can do that on any browser or any uh, like Apple TV or whatever. Um, you can just search Lesbian Bar Project on Roku. Uh, and the Roku channel. You can also go to our website, lesbianbarproject.com. There's a link to the series there and more information about our previous work. And you can follow us on Instagram at lesbianbarproject. Amazing. Well, Erica, I really, really appreciate you coming on uh, the speakeasy today and sharing your experiences and your work and um, your love of this very particular, very um, beloved uh, little slice of the bar world. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, And that is going to do it for us here at the Speakeasy today. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you want to hear a lot more amazing shows just like this one, go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out our roster of 30 weekly shows. Also, feel free to click on the beating heart at the top of the homepage to donate. For now, that's going to be it for us until next week when you're back with the founder of Wayward Spirits, which is spirits made from way. I know, right? Tune in to find out. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Happy Fourth of July and happy Pride, everyone. Cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.